Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> New York's right to counsel is actually greater than the United States Constitution, and it's based on our state constitution. All of you should know, maybe especially in light of certain issues in, out there today, that state constitutions and states can give you more rights than the U.S. Constitution, but can never give less. Now in New York, once an attorney is in the picture, all questioning must stop. Anything that Misty learns would be suppressed. Anything that she found out as a result of the interview would also be suppressed as fruit of the poisonous tree of that interview. Thank you. Let's go to Cherry Hogarth, who has a really unique practice that does criminal defense, personal injury, probate, and patent law. That doesn't exist in nature. <laughs> Could you be confident doing all those things? I want to take her, like, if I, you know, if my dog has a legal issue, and see if Hogarth, Benowitz, and Chow <laughs> represent my dogs. I feel like they'd be. No, I think if you were to go back, so it's, it, it is not uncommon to have folks that practice everything under the sun. If you were to go back in time, 25 years, virtually in any state in the country. General practitioners, as they're called, these like potpourri law firms, were the commonplace. I'm from North Carolina, and I, I will tell you, even in, when I graduated a few years back, the vast majority of my class didn't go out and like just go into criminal law or just go into patent law. They went out and hung a shingle, as you call it, and they're doing all these things. The trick for Jerry, so she can do this, but the, under the duty of competency in New York, you have to maintain a baseline competency in all of the things that you practice in. So it's not enough to just say, I'm a really good attorney, I can probably figure this thing out. You've gotta not just maintain that level, you've got to keep up with the changes in the law. I think what that would look like for Hogarth, if they did an episode on it, it's like some poor associate is getting whipped in the depths <laughs> of that building <laughs> to do all the research. But yeah, so, so she can do it. Probably one of the only like ethical things that I think she does. More <laughs> Let's talk about who's going to get the disbarred first. <laughs> Matt or Jerry Hogarth. So, Megan, let's talk about Matt's really creative community service of being a vigilante. Are there any issues with that that could get him into trouble? Well, um, yeah. So, an, according to New York law, an attorney can be suspended from the practice of law um, if he's found guilty of professional misconduct, uh, malpractice, fraud, deceit, crime, or misdemeanor. And here, if Daredevil, who's sitting over there, it would, is arrested <laughs> and somebody ripped off his mask and he gets convicted, um, it would definitely be a felony because uh, assaulting criminals is a felony. Uh, and yes, they would most likely disbar uh, Matt Murdock. Um, assault in the second degree is a D felony. So an assault is intentionally causing injury to a person or third person um, by means of a deadly weapon, which are his hands, <laughs> um, or dangerous instruments. So yes, and vigilante justice is not okay. So yes, he would be automatically disbarred if he were convicted, but you have to go through a lot of steps to get there. Well, let's give it over to Jerry Hogarth, who has a laundry list of bad things that she does. <laughs> and that's from the two seasons, and we might have missed something, but you know, those eight are pretty big. Uh, Thomas, what are your thoughts on do they make like a negative 10 font? Because that's what you're going to need to fit the rest of her misdeeds on there. So when I was looking at this, I, at first I was going to say yes. And then 
hell yes was the answer to whether she would be disbarred. What I love about Jerry Hogarth is that she selectively abides by the ethical rules. So you see in Jessica Jones, she's like very adamant that she has to bring this plea deal to her client, even if it means that her client might go to jail for something that we're pretty sure she didn't do, but yet she's willing to do all this other laundry list of, of other things. I think New York would probably like package her bar license up, load it into a bomb, and then just drop it into the bay and just explode it if, uh, if they were really coming after her. Let's pivot to Marcy Stahl, who in season one of Daredevil decides to take down her own law firm and a client of the firm by giving information that's to the attorney-client uh, privilege or work product to Matt and Foggy. And Judge Nohara, any issues for Marcy? Oh, yes. You know, I've got to point out that uh, the defenders do not treat women attorneys very well. Oh, no. <laughs> not even a little bit. Marcy acted out of fear when she leaked the uh, Wilson Fisk's private business matters and all of their paperwork to Nelson and Murdoch. She did this because she feared that some of his criminal behavior would be imputed to her bosses and then that somehow that would reflect badly on her. That's not a legitimate reason to act the way she did. And in many ways, it could be argued that she went vigilante. She acted outside of the law because she believed the ends justified the means, and she's going to be disbarred and possibly even prosecuted for what she did. There are proper channels to whistleblow, and if you're a whistleblower and you go through the proper channels, that's one thing. Um, but what she did put no, no safeguards in place. Uh, if, if the government had known about it, she'd been a whistleblower, they would have gotten uh, subpoenas and there would have been special masters who would have protected the rights of all the other clients that may have had dealings that had nothing to do with this, but their work was intertwined with this. So absolutely, Marcy acted worse than a first-year associate and, or even a first-year law student, and she would have absolutely been disbarred. So no pressure there. Let's talk about really creative service of process from <laughs> Jessica Jones season one. Christine, can you serve someone and take a selfie? Yes, you can, Josh. Um, and taking that smartphone photo would help in the event that the, the owner of the nightclub that Jessica Jones has served tried to challenge um, service because it would have the location metadata verifying the time and date. And if Jessica were a licensed process server, it would also help her comply with the New York City's Department of Consumer Affairs rules, which actually require licensed process servers to carry and operate an electronic device that records GPS location, time, and date. So the issue is whether Jessica somehow invalidates her otherwise good service by picking up the owner's car and threatening to melt his insides with her non-existent laser eyes. <laughs> so to do her job, she has to deliver the papers and then sign and file an affidavit with the court saying when, where, how she delivered them. So her in-person service with a selfie is good. Um, then the person served could challenge that by submitting a sworn denial, trying to call the facts in her affidavit into question. So if there are disputed facts, then those have to be resolved at something called a traverse hearing. But here, Jessica's conduct doesn't really give the owner cause to dispute the facts in her affidavit, though she may have some issues with the licensing board if that owner were to complain. Let's take a look at the clergy privilege from Daredevil, because we see him in the first episode confess to the priest prior to going out and saving all those women from being sold into slavery. Judge Sharino 
any issues with uh, the priest and knowing what marriage does. The, the, the clergy privilege and the spousal privilege are probably two of the oldest privileges that exist uh, under our common law. They come pretty much all the way back from England. And for a communication to be privileged, it must be confidential, which is the case with most, most confessions. It must be made to a minister or a clergy member in a professional character as a spiritual advisor. It must be made for the purpose of seeking spiritual advice or religious counsel. It can, however, be waived by the person who makes the statement to the clergy member. Let's talk about really unique client uh, intake. And, and Thomas, can you talk about John Healy from A Rabbit in the Snowstorm? Yeah, so John Healy comes into... Oh, Wesley comes in. Oh, I'm sorry. No, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so he, having just uh, smashed somebody's head with a, a bowling ball. And it's a weird scene because this global consortium has approached uh, Murdoch to, to pay his legal fees. And so it's this like really cloudy transaction that happens. If you think about your own life, if you've ever been in a car accident, you've probably had somebody else pay your legal fees. Your insurance company may have very well hired an attorney for you. So in New York, it's perfectly normal to have a third party pay, but there are some rules that go along with it. First and foremost, there's no attorney-client relationship just because you're paying the bills. If you ever had your mom or dad pay your legal, legal bills, there's no attorney-client relationship there. It's key there because the attorney, Matt Murdock in this case, can't di divulge confidential information to Fisk. Now, that doesn't stop uh, the client from doing that. But I think the key here is that that relationship can't exist if it's gonna affect the attorney's pr uh, professional judgment. And in this scene, it almost works the, the opposite way. So it's not um, the fact that he, he's being paid by this global consortium that's affecting it. It's Murdoch's interest in getting to the bottom of Fisk's dealings that absolutely affects his judgment of the case. Because I think in, you know, even Foggy is like, why this is a weird case. We're, we've got you know, 27 minutes or whatever to get to the precinct. This is very weird. And you know, Matt's over here like, let's do this thing. <laughs> so I think it's okay, but it's they're, they're treading in, in some dangerous waters there. So Jordan, in the episode, we see the first trial that takes place, and the the, the burden of proof is shifted from what it's supposed to be in real life. How was this different in the episode versus real life? Well, sort of. I mean, if you're going to raise self-defense, called a justification defense, it's on the defense to raise and prove that issue, at least to the satisfaction of the judge before it gets to the jury. Once it's raised, the defense puts on evidence to show that a person acted in self-defense. If they can satisfy the legal standard of more likely than not that those facts exist, then that case goes to the jury. The prosecutor then has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant did what they think they did, and the self-defense argument doesn't apply, but it is initially on the defense to raise that and prove that that could apply. Okay, let's take a look at the next issue with the law on self-defense since Jordan raised it. Megan, how does it work in New York? Okay, so in New York, um, it, it's permitted to use self-defense if the use of physical force upon another uh, when and to the extent he or she reasonably believes 
such to be necessary to defend himself, herself, or a third person from what he or she reasonably believes to be the use of imminent use of unlawful physical force by such a person. A very long definition. Um, so basically, there's factors that limit the use of this. Uh, it's one, whether or not the defendant, such as Healy, provoked the victim, or whether um, or whether the defendant was the initial aggressor, or who was the initial aggressor. It always depends on uh, what a reasonable person would do, and it's based on a, uh, the judge has to look at there's a credible basis that, that substantiates the uh, self-defense. So let's talk about being able to prove a subjective state of mind. So Jordan, how does that work? Well, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> the rules state that the jury gets to take into account both what a reasonable person would have done and what the defendant actually believed at the time. So the question of how you do that comes into play, and it's tricky. Um, it is an age-old adage amongst defense attorneys that never put your client on the stand. So if you put your client on the stand to testify, then the prosecutor gets to ask them questions, and the prosecutors usually are very, very good at tripping people up and asking them questions that make the answer not exactly what you as their defense attorney want. But to prove the state of mind that somebody's in and self-defense instructions will require you to do, you have to do that. So it is a, a dicey and a risky move, um, tactically in trial, but usually, unless there's somebody else or something else going on at the time, that somebody else can be called to talk about, you know, what a dangerous person this guy was, or, and I might be stepping on the next slide. Uh, <laughs> but you usually have to put your your client, your guy, the defendant, on the stand to talk about what was going through his head. Um, we'll shout back to the mock trial of Poe Dameron last night. You all <laughs> saw that. So. Let's take a look at an issue from Jessica Jones with Egan Kilgrave. How does that work in being able to prove the insanity defense for someone who's a victim of Kilgrave? And Christine, could you help us understand this? Sure. So there is some hope for uh, the insanity defense for Hope Schlotman, um, but it's kind of a close call. Um, so to prove that defense, Hope's attorneys would have to offer evidence that Kilgrave's hypnotic programming qualifies as a mental disease or defect and at the time Hope shot her parents, either she didn't understand the nature and consequences of her actions, or she didn't understand that her actions were wrong because of Kilgrave's programming. So Hope can probably show a mental disease or defect here. She would need an expert to testify about how Kilgrave's mind control works, but she could probably get somebody to come in and say, um, explain that he controls people through a virus that he emits um, through his body and being under his influence um, is a type of mental disease or defect. Um, the more difficult thing for Hope would be to show that the effect of the virus actually meets the other requirements of the test. So does it actually make her able, um, unable to know or appreciate the nature of her conduct or know that it's wrong? So there's facts in both directions here. So on one hand, Hope says, he made me do things I didn't want to do, but I wanted to, which suggests maybe she does understand what she's doing or she does know that it's wrong. Um, on the other hand, there's still the issue of when does she know this, because she can still meet the test if she doesn't know it at the time she kills her parents. So when you see the elevator door open and Hope says, 
smile and that really creepy voice, it does seem like she's under the influence at the time, and she doesn't really perceive what happened until a few moments later when she snaps out of it. So I think Hope probably has enough to be able to put on this evidence, and she should get an instruction on this, but it's a pretty close call. Judge Schreiner, anything else that can be done to prove to a jury how this could work? Well, they can also try the tact of, of, of scientifically proving that the Purple Man had this kind of control. And, and, and New York, uh, unlike most of the states, still use what is called the Fry Test, which is an older test, which is reasonably accepted in the scientific community in order for scientific evidence to come forward. And that would be tough with regards to this kind of case because it's clearly something that's new, hasn't been tested. Also, brainwashing is not a very successful tact in courts, in the Patty Hearst case, and in other cases, it's very hard to show that someone has actually been brainwashed. The tack that I might take is all of the people that were affected by the Purple Man, all of the cops who pointed the guns at their head, all of those people brought into a courtroom to sh testify that they were not in control of their actions, and you parade them in front of the jury, I think you'd have a very good defense. Let's pivot to Karen Page getting kidnapped by Wesley. <laughs> and she pulls a gun, fires once at the moment when she can escape, and then empties the gun into him. Is that self-defense, Christine? <laughs> well, Josh, your slide asks when does self-defense turn into murder? And Karen probably has an argument that it's, the first shot is not murder because she can make out self-defense, but the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh shots are all <laughs> problematic. Um, so if Karen reasonably believes that deadly force, deadly force is necessary to defend herself from what she reasonably believes to be the imminent use of deadly force on her, she can make out the defense of what New York actually has, um, the, the term is justification in the title of the statute. Um, it does, that state does impose a duty to retreat before lethal force is used, but it only applies if Karen knows she can retreat with complete personal safety. And here, as long as Wesley can get a hold of the gun, she probably can't retreat with complete personal safety. It's also worth mentioning she had been kidnapped and drugged. So yes. She doesn't know where she is. I mean, that would impact retreat because she's been kidnapped. Fair point. Um, so on the substantive prongs, um, she, uh, so for the, the imminence of the threat, uh, Karen has to actually believe that Wesley's about to imminently use deadly force on her, um, which we'll just assume she does. Um, and also a reasonable person knowing what she knows would also have to believe this. So here she has a pretty good argument um, that, that a reasonable person would believe that Wesley points a gun at her, he puts it on the table, he threatens everyone she knows. Um, She'd previously been framed for murder by his criminal organization that sent an assassin to kill her that also ended up dead. And he's getting up out of the chair when she first shoots him, probably to try to overpower her and get the gun. So for all those reasons, somebody would, would probably reasonably believe that Wesley is about to use lethal force. Um, on the proportionality requirement, um, would somebody have believed lethal force is necessary? Again, if Wesley succeeds in overpowering her, regardless of whether he has the gun or not, he probably can kill her. And at that point, the situation has escalated to the, to the point where a reasonable person would probably think he intends to kill her. Um, but with those remaining shots, um, Wesley was physically incapacitated but not dead after he gets shot for the first time. Um, and so those extra shots are probably not justified by an imminent threat. Well, with this in mind, 
let's pivot with these factors to the time that Jessica Jones goes all man of steel on Kilbrae. And Jordan, can you help us through this? Yeah, so spoiler alert for the end of Jessica Jones season one, uh, <laughs> Purple Man doesn't make it. He takes control of Trish and he's gonna make Trish do all these things and Jessica decides that there's really only one way out of this for him and snaps his neck. Um, bottom line, it likely no. She does not have a self-defense claim or justification claim. You can usually raise them in defense of others, but the New York statutes all require that someone is about to use imminent physical force to harm someone. What about the fact that all those people were riding and attacking each other? Because there's actual physical force taking place with violence against people. But Kilgrave wasn't the one using that physical force. And the law, either sadly or obviously, just doesn't keep up with psychics. Um, <laughs> once, the, uh, once we figure that out, maybe we'll, we'll move on. But it, it's not hopeless for Jessica to get out of this without, you know, prison, murder, death penalty, all that. Because you have enough people in New York City that have been Kilgraved that likely somebody on that jury, everybody on that jury is going to know somebody who either was or knows somebody who was. He was just not, he was pretty liberal in the distribution of his abuse and powers. So that jury can always vote to acquit her. Despite all the evidence, despite all the prosecution's arguments, anything like that, it's called jury nullification. Um, and it does happen in some of these cases. The prosecutor also has to get this through what's called a grand jury, which, long story short, is a check on the prosecutor's ability to just randomly charge cases. And that grand jury can also nullify. Um, and the prosecutor might do that just as a cover because the other option here is, as we see in season two, where the officer is thanking her for killing Kilgrave, the prosecutor might just decide, I don't want to bring this case. It was the right thing to do. I'm not going to charge it, legal or not. Well, with that, let's take a look at the time Pam kills Wendy in order to save Jerry. Thomas, what will Trump dare? The defense of others or the insanity defense? So here, if we're, we're going purely on statistics, and this is how I operated when I was a criminal defense attorney. Like, let's play the odds. <laughs> Look at the insanity defense. New York doesn't keep like a 100% log of these things, but if you go back from 2015, they did a study for the tracking the insanity defense and its success rate over the last 10 years. Just seven out of 5,900 cases resulted in a finding of not, uh, not responsible by reason of mental disease or defect. And that's, you know, my math is a little fuzzy. That's like 0.1%. <laughs> and so if, if Pam was like, well, I was insane and, and uh, you know, controlled here, I, I don't think we'd be playing those odds. On the other hand, we talked about quite extensively about self-defense. And think back to that scene. She comes in the door and what is Wendy doing? She's slashing... Uh, you know, her, the love of her life uh, to death, uh, you know, death by a thousand cuts. And I think in that situation, you've got a prime case for defense of others. We talk about like the imminency of physical violence. She's witnessing physical violence a foot from her, like blood is spraying on her. 
So that's, I, I tell her to put that insanity defense completely out of her mind and let's, let's roll our dice for self-defense. Well, let's pivot to the crazy idea that, hey, we have to torture Kilgrave into confessing he has the superpower. And Judge Nahar, any issues with you know, putting him in that vacuum chamber <laughs> with water and just electrocuting him until he talks? I mean, it sounds like a great Gitmo exercise. But, uh, <laughs> how's that sound in, in court? Well, without putting too fine a point on it, perhaps the, 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 a bedrock of American jurisprudence is the right to remain silent, the Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself. Because that is so rooted in American jurisprudence and in common law, even when there are confessions, there have to be certain safeguards. So if a police officer or a governmental agency is, is eliciting this confession, there has to be all of the Miranda warnings given, especially if someone is in custody. They have to know what their rights are and that they can exercise those rights to remain silent. If it's a non-police officer, if it's a civilian, much like Jessica Jones, then it has to show, if the confession is going to come in, there has to be an indicia of reliability, of, of confidence and trustworthiness in that confession. And if they show a video of someone getting shocked every time you want them to say <laughs> what you want them to say, you're not going to get an indicia of reliability. And there is no way any court of law would allow that. And if some judge were insane enough and snort and crack and, and allowed that in, what would happen is that it would be overturned on appeal in... A New York Minute. Do you, do you have a lot of snorting judges? Keep <laughs> <laughs> LA, we don't talk about that. <laughs> no, we got a very boring group, I'll be honest with you. So, barring East Coast, West Coast feud, <laughs> the War of the Purple Roses, where <clears throat> Wendy decides to uh, extort Jerry and their divorce battle that they're having, saying like, hey, I want 90% of your income in order to cover up the fact that you bribed a juror in the first case that you had. And if you, if I don't get that money, I'm going to get you disbarred. Judge Trina, any issues with that? Yeah, our, our rules of professional conduct prohibit a lawyer from participating or threatening any kind of criminal charge in order to get an advantage in a civil matter. Um, also, if a criminal case is ongoing, you should all recognize that it is the prosecutor or the district attorney that prosecutes the case. It is not the victim's case, as if it was a civil lawsuit. However, the DA is under an obligation to keep the victim apprised as to what is going on. But sometimes, a complaining witness might mysteriously become uncooperative with the prosecution, and this could have been based on some kind of civil resolution or payment or gift or something along those lines. And the reality is, while that's wrong, it would be very hard for the court to ever find that out unless they seek the court's help to enforce that agreement. So if they came to that agreement and it is later comes to court to enforce it, a court might say that that agreement was against public policy and set it aside. Well, let's talk about the big trial in season two of Daredevil with The Punisher. And, and Christine, what's up with the DA violating the Constitution left and right? Like, you have a week to take a capital murder case with 40 victims to trial. Josh, there's no way we could possibly cover all of the DA's misdeeds. So I'm just going to hit the highlights and give you um, my top three issues. 
um, in reverse order. So number three, violating Frank's due process right not to appear in shackles during the guilt phase of his jury trial. This has a tendency to undermine the presumption of innocence. And in New York, you, the court is supposed to put on the record what is the specific reason why this particular defendant has to be shackled. Um, on the other hand, if the evidence of guilt is overwhelming, any error in this regard might, might be harmless. Um, number two, interfering with Frank's Sixth Amendment right to counsel and his right to retain the counsel of his choice by threatening Matt, and I quote, leave this entire case behind before you wake up six feet under the ash that was your reputation and promising legal career. Now, there's a little issue here with conflict of interest because new client Frank has actually killed previous client Grotto, um, which does not escape the DA's attention. Um, so you might question whether you really have the right to your victim's counsel. Um, on the other hand, it doesn't necessarily excuse the DA's conduct, um, and she did endanger Grotto's life herself, so she can hardly complain, um, which brings me to number one, violating Frank's right to due process and the prosecutor's duty to disclose exculpatory evidence by willfully hiding evidence of the Punisher ambush, which could have supported Frank's defense of sympathetic storming, tended to undermine the credibility of the prosecution witnesses or mitigate his sentence. And did cases go to trial in a week? Often. Yeah, typically not, Josh. Typically not cases of this caliber. Yeah, let's, let's, I want you all to understand that maybe they should have called us. Let's <laughs> <laughs> talk about the trial advocacy that she loved. Matt is out playing with Alexa, fighting ninjas, but people do on dates nowadays. And Foggy ends up being in court and decides to, like, hey, Matt's not here. I'll give the opening statement instead. Tom has any issues with that. Like, I knew that setup for that scene, and I got nervous watching Foggy and the whole court just sit there. Uh, you know, Matt's off doing daredevil things and Electra stuff. And, you know, unfortunately for the Punisher, well, maybe fortunately, Foggy ends up stepping up to the bat. So, flat out, I don't think it was ineffective assistance of counsel. New York State has a very tough bar to, to hurdle for. A, uh, a client to prove ineffective assistance of counsel or get a finding for that. It's, it's two prongs. So the first prong is that attorney has to basically fail to act as an attorney under the Constitution. That's a high bar. I mean, you've got, like, Foggy would have had to walk up and just break dance in front of the jury and then sit down and maybe, like, babble a little bit. That's not enough. Even if he had done that, the Punisher still might not succeed because you've got the second prong which is that there had to be actual prejudice. So if there was, like, if the Punisher could prove, like, well, there was a juror that thought, you know, I don't like that breakdance routine, then you know, maybe. <laughs> but that's a tough standard to prove, especially when you don't necessarily get access to to the jurors. The scene played out. Foggy stepped up brilliantly, gave a spectacular opening statement, uh, one that I would be proud of. So he doesn't have a claim there, regardless of the outcome. Why not just defer the opening? Yeah, or you could do that. For those that don't know, the defense has this cool tactic that we can use where uh, you, you can wait, see the prosecution lay their cards out, and when the prosecution rests, you do your deferred opening statement. You've seen the prosecution's play. It almost acts as like an opening and a rebuttal opening all in one. Now, Christine, with Matt going out and playing Daredevil with, with Electra, did that violate his duty of loyalty to Frank Castle? Um, you could look at it through that lens, but New York actually has an even more specific rule um, of professional conduct, um, 1.3, that requires lawyers to act with reasonable diligence 
in representation, and it also um, prohibits them from neglecting a legal matter entrusted to them. Um, and here, Matt has failed to prepare for trial. He didn't set his alarm. He overslept. He blew off trial to hang out with his ex. Um, so once Matt realizes that he doesn't really have the bandwidth to do this, he should withdraw if he's able to do that without prejudicing Frank, which is questionable because the trial is now, um, or ask for a continuance so Foggy can, can get some help for new counsel. So let's pivot to how we do trial prep with Karen Page going to the hospital and, and talking to Frank. Uh, Karen's not a lawyer. Megan, any issues with that? So first, I have to say, I love her enthusiasm. I gotta give her two props. She really gets into it for her clients. Um, but so uh, with attorney-client privilege comes, the privilege runs to everyone who assists in the representation. So that would be the secretary's paralegal. So everybody in the office who helps with the case, the privilege runs to them. There's two different types of privileged agents. So there's the communicating agents, which are like the secretaries um, who, type the letters so they obviously know what's going on and then there's the representing agents which are paralegals and file clerks and stuff like that so uh, a communicate communicating agent is must be reasonably necessary or the privilege is waived so you know a secretary has to type stuff up they're reasonably necessary um, the representing agents uh, is a little bit different and uh, they're retained by the attorney and one of the things in a New York case says that the privilege extends to the agent as long as it's necessary or at least highly useful for the effective communication between the client and the lawyer. Well, since Frank wasn't really talking to his attorneys, <laughs> I'm going to say that she was probably necessary. However, when she's in the hospital, she's really talking about breaking into his house <laughs> and trying to find out who killed his family. So it really has an absolutely nothing to do, I mean, it has to do with his defense sort of, but I don't know, it's kind of on the fringe. She's she's almost dancing around um, the unauthorized practice of law. So, uh, and there is one case in New York that actually says um, communications of a paralegal are privileged as long as the, they're communicating the attorney's advice, but as soon as their communications originate with the paralegal, then they are not privileged. So I'm gonna go with not quite, she's right on the edge. So we're going to now kick into the lightning round of issues with panelists. Get ready. So, Christine, talk about the battle of the experts and how to prove sympathetic storming. Um, Josh, this defense reminds me of the time I baked a cake from my friend and he asked me what flavor I was going for, which didn't hurt my feelings at all. Um, because it's hard to tell what they're going for with this. Um, what, what I think they're trying to go for is to show that Frank has some kind of emotional disturbance um, that causes him to relive the deaths of his family um, when he, at the time he was committing his crimes, um, to try to get um, the charges mitigate. So, so Frank is facing 37 charges of homicide. Um, and so they want to try and bring that down um, by showing he wasn't capable of forming specific intent to kill um, and get the Emmy to corroborate um, this by proving that the Emmy falsified the autopsy reports of Frank's family. Okay. Um, the problem is, is that what the jury sees isn't very coherent. Um, the jury doesn't hear all of the testimony of the medical examiner because um, halfway through it, the judge closes the courtroom. Then the judge decides that the testimony is tainted and that it must be excluded, but it's not clear whether she's excluding all of it. They didn't hear the part about the falsified report anyways, and the instruction wasn't in their presence. And so 
it's unclear what, what they would, they wouldn't know unless she repeats it when they come back. So although Foggy gets in this concept of sympathetic storming, the whole presentation is just really confusing. Um, so this whole defense is just kind of botched. Let's talk about botched uh, moves. With calling the colonel <laughs> to testify as a character witness. And Judge Nahara, is there any danger with calling a character witness for a guy who's accused of killing 37 people and taking out gangs and all of that good <laughs> stuff? Oh, yes. In a, unlike what happened in this particular trial, if there had been a competent prosecutor at that trial, <laughs> what, what that competent prosecutor would have done was, after the colonel testified, would have cross-examined him about everything that Frank Castle had done, every one of those crimes. She would have gone over every one of, every bit of evidence she'd already presented because she can do that with this witness, because with a character witness, you can go over everything that they have done, every horrible act, and ask at the end of going over each act, tell me, Colonel, does this change your opinion? And by about, you've gone over by the 20 or 30th act, you've asked that question, and the Colonel's saying, oh no, no, I still think he's a great guy. <laughs> he loses all credibility in front of the jury. Then, the, she can then attack the story that he gave. Because essentially, what the colonel testified to, when you think about it, is that Frank Castle was a very, very clear-thinking man who went in and murdered a bunch of enemy agents who would have murdered in, to, to protect his people. But he did it in a thought-out, very analytical way. And isn't that how he committed all of these crimes? So what is the mental disease, or what is the the uh, traumatic brain injury that was the intervening factor, when in fact his character is the same way now as it was back when he was in the service. In the service, he went in and he clearly understood and premeditated how to kill an enemy, and he was still doing that in New York City. That witness alone could have destroyed the defense if the DA had been competent. <laughs> if only they called us for these things. <laughs> well, let's talk about how the question of punishment, because that would be a really, really, really dangerous thing to do. And Christina and Katrina, let's break this down on how you could do this. Christina, what would be your line of questioning that you would do for a direct examination of the punisher? Well, I think, Josh, the goal is you want to try to create that moment in season two, episode four, Penny and Dime, where Frank um, really shows his humanity and shows what his family meant to him and tells that story. Um, and so you've got some suggested questions up there. Um, I think you, you know, maybe Matt would have had more success um, if he'd started small and built up from there, <laughs> talked, you know, get, get him talking about the specifics of his family. But by the time of trial, Matt and Foggy have just lost control of Frank in every way <laughs> it's possible to lose control. Um, he doesn't have confidence in Foggy. He's lost confidence in Matt. Um, and it's, it really seems like when he walks in, he's kind of made up his mind already to go in a different direction. Yeah. Judge Shreya, your thoughts? There is no way from a defense attorney I could put him on the stand. And the other thing, I, I, I really think that in future conventions, Josh, you should do a correct trial. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but Did you guys see that? <laughs> However, as much as a defense lawyer might tell their client, do not testify. That's one of those things that the defendant can say, I'm going to testify. 
and then you really do have to put them on, on the stack. Um, and, and if you do do that, in this case, you're going to try to get as much sympathy as you can, even though a jury will be told by the judge that they cannot use sympathy or bias to affect their decision as to what the facts were, because a jury is only supposed to determine the facts, one of those facts being guilt or not guilty. But we all know juries are human, and it probably does affect their decision. So if we did that mock trial, we need a New York judge. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about Luke Cage. So, Jordan, does Luke have a duty to warn people who want to hit on that he's unbreakable? No. Okay. <laughs> Next time you guys think about going up and punching somebody, just remember they have no duty to warn you if they have unbreakable skin. So don't <laughs> do that. You're rolling So let's talk about unauthorized prison experiments. And Thomas, is it okay to do that to prisoners? What was done to Luke with, hey, wanna, want superpowers? Don't ask, like, don't go back in time in the United States like 80 years and ask prison officials then. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> Excellent. Let's take a look at Judge Shreno at, at the one issue from Iron Fist, where the hand decides because they're the bad guys and someone has consulted the lawyer that they have synthetic heroin, therefore it's okay, and they can't get charged for selling heroin. Any problems with the bad guys making that legal determination for themselves? It, it would still be illegal under New York state law and federal law to sell imitation-controlled substances. And in the New York City Administrative Code, it's illegal to sell synthetic marijuana, K2, and other banned salts. However, there is a bit of a hiccup in that the selling of imitation drugs and counterfeit drugs, the penalties are usually not as severe as selling the main controlled substances. And in New York, we're actually dealing with this issue right now because there are nine hybrid fentanyls that have not been added to our New York State controlled substance list. There are 11 out there in total. So if you're selling one of the nine, they're having trouble prosecuting people. So they clearly will be prosecuted. But a good defense lawyer might be able to get the hand through. I didn't see anybody furiously scribbling notes. So I think there's no New York State <laughs> For the record, selling imitation drugs probably still not your best career move. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, let's talk about resurrecting Electra. Any issues with bringing that today? All right, so I know this is a big hot button topic. Uh, Frankenstein, John Stowe, John Snow. I know it's all over the news. Resurrecting people. Um, yeah, it's uh, either pulling them out of the uh, digging up the grave and pulling them out of the grave or receiving a dead body um, is all bad. Don't do it. It's illegal. <laughs> Now, Judge Nahara, in the Defenders, uh, Murdoch claims he's representing both Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. Any issues with him doing it? Oh, yes. You can, as an attorney, represent more than one client involved in one case. And sometimes, if there are certain overlapping issues, that's actually um, not a bad thing. However, there are certain safeguards in place. Before this can happen, the attorney has got to disclose privately to both clients any foreseeable adverse consequences. 
And as we saw here, he walked in and said, I am representing you both. There hasn't been any kind of a discussion. He hasn't disclosed anything to them. So right out the door, he can't be doing this. Then not only does he have to disclose it, but it has to be in writing. So both parties have to execute a document saying, our attorney has explained these foreseeable consequences to us. We're okay with them. And in case something does come up, we've already agreed which one of us gets to keep the attorney. None of that was done. Finally, one thing that absolutely is sacrosanct is if you have conflicting defenses and it comes up that there will be conflicting defenses, then they absolutely cannot be jointly represented. So in this case, he could maybe do it if he followed all the appropriate steps, but since he didn't in this situation, he can't. <laughs> well, let's pivot to the last issue from the defenders where Jessica has actually spent a lot of time reading the law. She's the one who's misexposition when it comes to the law. And she points out, hey, blowing up Midland Circle would be domestic terrorism. Thomas, what's she right? Jessica says a lots of things. <laughs> We'd have like long confidential discussions about her thoughts on the law and like the law. I think the reality, Judge Serena, I'll, I'll pivot to you so you can talk about it. The reality is even if she was accurate in that, under the circumstances, I mean, this is like the, the heart of the hand. It's a pretty egregious situation they're coming up against. And they, they took care to avoid civilian casualties there. I don't think this ever makes it to trial, but you can expand on that. Likewise, one of, one of the safeguards that, that were brought up in, in New York is, is the grand jury system and, and the prosecutors looking at cases before they actually decide to prosecute. Uh, and, and this would probably be one of those kind of things that, that either a prosecutor is going to decide, I'm not going to prosecute, or a grand jury uh, will say what we call no true bill, which is a refusal to indict the person for a particular crime. So it actually ends accurately. So let's take a look at there. We have like three minutes for questions, so we don't have a lot of time, so there's maybe one or two that we can get to. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, just a uh, real quick back on the uh, kill grade taking over people's minds. What do you think about the defense of involuntary intoxication? Oh. voluntarily intoxicating yourself, and that carries certain risk to yourself. But if someone drugged you, um, you, you might be able to argue that parallel type of case. The very, oh, at the very least, it would, it would diminish your um, liability. And so perhaps what they might try to charge you with would be, you would go in with maybe a lesser charge or be convicted of something lesser because you didn't have the appropriate intent or the mens rea. It's just a fancy word for what you intend to do versus what you don't intend to do. Thanks for being here. I come to all your events. Thank you. Thank you. I have a question about some stuff that happened in the Jared and Thomas. Don't worry, no spoilers. It's all like a couple of hours ago. So at some point, Jared Neville actually um, discloses his identity to everyone, uh, which results in some of his cases uh, being overturned. Uh, then he basically uses the offspring of Kilgrave to wipe everybody's memory, uh, which they did for him as a gift because they realized it's a problem. So then he's readmitted to the bar because people have no idea, and he engineers a situation in which he establishes a precedent that will allow uh, vigilantes to uh, testify um, in cases where they were involved. Um, without actually disclosing their identities as expert witnesses. Oh, so I was wondering if you could comment on any aspect of that. <laughs> 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 
first of all, I, I love this arc. And, 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 and I've been actually, as I've been reading this arc, I've been sending emails to Josh because they, I love the fact that they actually did the trial court, they did the ruling of the judge, they did what we call our appellate division, they did the arguments there, they did the, our court of appeals, they did the arguments there, and then the case eventually goes to the, the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and Josh and I actually did a podcast with dealing with Batman and, and Batman testifying with his mask and stuff. We, we have a similar situation with undercover officers. Uh, and, and the court has to have uh, an open courtroom. And what we do is we'll have a semi-closed hearing first where the undercover officer will testify as to if they're still undercover officers. Are they still in the same area? Uh, and, and if certain other criteria are met, then the courtroom will be closed to the public for the testimony of that person. Wouldn't that have a mask? There are also some cases in federal court where they have allowed and protected people to testify via closed caption TV and other things. But you would first have to have a significant reason for doing so and hold a hearing in order to justify that happening. Now, California is completely different from that. <laughs> in California, if, if an undercover agent is going to have to disclose who they are, there can be a hearing in camera to discuss whether or not they're a recipient witness and whether or not the prosecution needs them to testify. And if it turns out that they were, in fact, a recipient witness and they, the prosecution cannot go forward with that prosecution without that witness, then the burden is on the prosecutor to either turn over that witness, their name and, and who they are, or dismiss the case. Those are the only two options. I, I also shocked her when I told her that I've done cases with defendants in shackles. Yeah. Um, because what we do in New York, and clearly there has to be a justification for the shackles. But we'll have, like here, we'll have bunting around both the prosecutor's table and the defense table, and the jury can't see that the defendant is shackled. Uh, and, and that's done to safeguard, of course, his rights to a fair trial, but the the concern that the court has for this particular witness causing a danger to someone else. Usually the danger is to their attorney, their public defender. It it's very <laughs> rare that they attack us, but, but unfortunately I have been part of trials where the, the, the attorney has, has been attacked by their client. Statistically, they're more likely to go after the prosecutor than us, though. I know we're about to run out of time, so. Real quick, in a world where someone can like literally punch through a building, how would you, uh, you kind of touched on it before, how would you recommend trying to defend someone or prosecute them, um, maybe with like a, a assault with a deadly weapon where their weapon literally is just their fist or melting from a drive Have you, you know? seen um, Con Air, where yes. Nicolas Cage <laughs> is, a, is an actual weapon? <laughs> I'm glad that I was able to wrap, rope in Con Air to the Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go with the legal weapon. Because we're out of time. Thank you all for the